0: Welcome to Computer History, I'm your host, Chris Garcia. For 20 years, I worked at a computer museum. At the end, I was a curator, and my focus was on computer graphics, music, art, and video games. You know, the fun stuff. I also dabbled in the history of AI, as well as punched cards, which I really do love. I wrote extensively on the history of computers, and particularly on graphics, music, and art and video games and I was lucky enough to get to interact with a number of the seminal figures in the history of computing, ranging from the founders of artificial intelligence like John McCarthy, people who were key in developing computer art in the 1970s, 80s and onwards like Harold Cohen, the legends of personal computing from Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs to Bill Gates to Dan Bricklin and Bob Frankston, names that I'll be mentioning as we go along Furthermore, I deeply dug into the artifacts of computer history. I would argue I'd seen most of the key artifacts in history and got to work directly with them, sometimes only so far as cleaning them and making sure they were ready for presentation, but sometimes actually getting into the nuts and bolts. I've been lucky enough to read documentation written by the hand of key figures such as Harry Husky, Alan Turing, Seymour Cray, Grace Hopper, so many people's works that I managed to get and to actually absorb concepts. And I've spent the last few years figuring out how to present this in a way that makes it possible for someone to go through and get a general idea of what computers mean in the world we live in today and what they meant in the past. So this will be both a technological look as well as a socio-political look. Yeah, it'll be one of those. One thing it won't be is a lot about numbers. It'll be some, of course, but it won't really look at deeply how the technology works, more what it means. Now that I've lost all the hardcore engineers out there, let's start with a couple of quick definitions. There's an argument out there, and a lot of educators buy into this, that firsts aren't really important, and there can't be an answer to the question, what was the first computer? Because you can't really say what the first computer was without putting a bunch of adjectives. First digital computer, first electronic computer, first electronic digital computer, first general purpose computer, and on and on and on. I push back against that for a number of reasons. And while I understand why there is pushing against it, one, it does fall into this idea of the great man theory, he said with audible quotation fingers. And two, there's always the fact that you can argue what is the first. But I think a key element that needs to be done is looking at how we define a thing. For the purposes of this podcast, I am defining a computer as an electronic computer. That's important. Because to do that, One, it limits it down while making it more broad than saying electronic digital computer, but two, it is through the electronic computer, not necessarily the electronic digital computer, though everything went that direction eventually, but it is through the electronics realm that the computers we know and understand today came. So in essence, it's a bit broader, but also a bit narrower. And there are things that people will say well that was digital that was electronic but the sides are blurry but we'll be looking at those blurs in quite some detail over the future episodes i think one of the reasons why it's important to know a first and i'm not a patent lawyer but they definitely want to know the firsts is that to understand when something happens You have to know a time so you can bind it, so you can place it in that context of that time. Nothing in the history of computing happens in a vacuum. Everything has connections to the outside world. We see that greatly in computing, particularly because of World War II, the Cold War, the economic issues, the social issues that need to be dealt with at the times. And this podcast will not be dealing much with the technology as much as the impact of the technology. Something I am very, very adamant about is that you can know all the numbers, all the speeds, and actually not understand what any of it means in the context of the society that we've built around computers. And make no mistake, the society that we live in today, in the Western world at least, much of it, is based around computing. But I hear some of you say, what about those things before electronic computers? Don't they matter? And they do. And that's what I'll be talking about in the beginning. Now we're gonna have to define some terms. And the first term I really need to define is, what's a computer? And for the purposes of this podcast, do not quote me on any dissertation. A computer has five elements and two concepts. First, it has to have a processor. And that processor can be any number of things. It can be electronic. And that's what we're going to focus on in this podcast. But historically, it could be electronic. It could be mechanical, electromechanical. It can be liquid. It can be a person. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But it has to have a processor where the actual work of computation is done. And the first concept is, it must be a thing that does computation. That will actually make some things that often get lumped into computer history, obvious that they're not actually computers. More about that later. Second, it has to have storage. Now there's a lot of arguments here that it doesn't really need storage, but storage is an important aspect of computing as we'll be looking at it. It needs a way to put things that have been calculated so that it can be held long term. Now there's a lot of computers throughout history that I will call computers that didn't necessarily have storage or at least didn't have included storage, but the idea of storage was there, with them. In fact, almost everything used either a punch card or paper tape, and there are hundreds of forms of storage. Disc, wire, tape, card, all sorts of them. Next, you need to have a form of input. There has to be a way to get information into the processor. These include a range of peripherals from keyboards, Mouse, mice,s moses, mouses, mouses, eh. trackballs, light pens, all sorts of things. Anything that can take the human or other machine and take the important commands and get them to a machine has to have output. Has to have a way to actually see the information presented to you in a way that you can if not comprehend, at least grok the general gist of it. That includes printers, monitors, all sorts of things, speakers. I I go through speakers on my computers a lot. It's all the stuff that takes what has been processed and brings it to you. Last one is memory. And again, this is another thing, some computers didn't necessarily have memory memory, but we'll talk more about that later, like a lot of things. Memory has to do with what holds information that is being worked by the processor. So in a simple flow diagram you would have a person input through their keyboard a string of commands. The processor would then start to work on those commands fetching from storage any programs that it needed to actually use the work, and then back and forth between memory as it actually processed it. It would then output it, potentially through the screen. Now those five concepts are to me critical. There's the one thing computation, a computer is a device used for computation. And the third one is representation. And this is what really separates it from analog computers, which I will talk about a little bit. Though analog computers do have representation, but is the ability to take one form of thing and process it within itself and have an output that is different. Uh, One way I've always heard is it is, a computer is an information grinder an ungrinder, it takes your input and translates it into something that it can deal with. And traditionally this has been binary code, but there are many different ways of representation. And then it outputs something that you recognize. You're not dealing with, or at least very, very rarely, anything that is actually the elements that you input. You're putting it, it's or that it deals with it in you're getting output in a different form, a form that you can understand. In essence, there is a translation, two translations. It's taking your input and translating it into something that it can understand. And then it is outputting it after translating it into a form that you can understand. See, easy. There are a whole bunch of other things that are of course attached that we'll be talking about, interfaces, software, so on and so forth. But that's really, the five elements and two concepts that are going to inform the definition of computers we're going to use here. And again, I said electronic, which is, well, let me just read here from merriam websters dictionary. Of, relating to, or utilizing devices constructed or working by the methods of the principles of electronic, uh, relating to the flow of electrons. Okay okay that's that's fine that's clean i guess so all this is to set us up with this idea of what a computer is let's talk about things that aren't computers that often get lumped in because they had an effect on how computers would evolve as long as there have been people who need to keep track of stuff there have been forms of computation some devices would even be considered computers by some people who didn't have a very stringent form of what a computer meant, there are devices for counting for sure. Things like tally sticks. There's the famous Lebombo bone, which is around South Africa, and it might be the oldest known mathematical artifact. It's about thirty-five thousand years old, and there are twenty-nine notches and it's cut into a baboon's fibula, the leg bone, uh, which would have been used to keep track of, well, something. We have no idea what. The key there is intention. But here's an important element here. This is just counting. Counting doesn't really work as a form of calculation, computation, not at all. It allows... it is a form though of storage and potentially memory for the individual who is doing anything with that information. They're recording forms from all over the world including things like calculi which were little clay spheres which had things inside of them to represent what was being held. Uh, Counting rods of course. But the real big deal was the abacus. And we know the abacus dates back at least four thousand years, possibly five thousand. And there are various forms of abacus that have continued on well through to today. And the abacus is there are different forms, but this is the one that we see the most of is columns which represent a power. so usually it's ten hundreds, or singles, tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, and so on and so forth. And what's interesting is if you have, say, a 10 bead abacus, you can actually break it up into two five-digit numbers, which you then use to calculate between that. It's a really fascinating and versatile machine. The famous form of it, of course, are reckoning boards or tables. These were usually tables or boards with lines in them to represent the various sections, and you would move counters. Uh, Jetons is what uh, the French used, and European counting houses use this, or sometimes it'd even be a checkered cloth that would be placed on the table, and you'd move them around. The abacus as we know it with the rods and the beads is also very, very old. But what's interesting is none of these are computers or even calculating devices. They're aid the memoirs. The human is actually doing the calculating and is holding it in the thing to aid in that calculation. In essence, it's the operational memory. You are doing the calculating, but you're using the abacus to actually hold the numbers as you are operating on them. This is a key distinction between the abacus and computers or even calculators. It's not doing any calculating. It's allowing you to make the calculations and to have some tangible form to represent it. Analog computers date back also to the ancient world. And we are not 100% sure, but we do know that there were forms of automata dating back to ancient Egypt and Babylon. Possibly the most complex early version we know of is the Antikythera mechanism. This is a Greek piece dating from about 150 to 100 BCE. The idea is this, it was used as a sort of a calculator, perhaps to calculate the dates of the Olympics, perhaps other things, but it definitely kept track of the known planets and the moon. Now this is pretty darn advanced. And there's a lot of theory about why it was built, why you would need to, you know, figure out when the Olympics are going to be and so forth. But it was found, of course, in a shipwreck. We don't have any other form of this surviving. And there may have been hundreds, there may have only been the one. It seems unlikely. And one theory that I've definitely posited over the years is that if the longer something survives, the more likely there is more than one of them, unless there is only one of them and it is revered. So you might have thousands of swords of a particular type and some may survive, but if you only have one of a particular type, it is unlikely to survive unless that sword becomes revered, unless that sword represents something more than itself. The Antikythera mechanism may have been more important than just the device. It may have had some significance to as being transported between important figures in the government who used it as a important device for figuring out things. We don't know. There's no documentation that we can look at. It'd be great if we ever found a user's manual. Mechanical devices in particular forms of orrery, which represent the planets and other astral bodies and would move in relationship to one another. have been created for centuries. We have figures such as Abu Rahan al-Biruni and a number of other medieval Muslim astronomers and engineers who did clocks and other forms of system that allowed some what we would consider primitive calculation, but it doesn't seem like they were being used to actually calculate. They were analog devices, which is key. But there also may have been things that were programmable, and that's difficult because you were still at a very limited amount. So it wasn't general purpose, certainly, but it was a very specific reprogrammable system that allowed you to run various checks. So if you wanted to figure out, well, I want to know where the moon will be in six weeks And I want to know the relative position of Mars. Well, you just move it through. The Renaissance saw the rise of a number of different arts and sciences. An important figure here is the the Scottish mathematician John Napier. And Napier developed the concept of logarithm. But more importantly for us, he developed Napier's bones, which allowed you to take So you might have five numbers in a number you wanna represent. So one, two, three, four, five, for example. And you could figure out multiplication using them by placing them in certain orders. And then adding adjacencies. That's as thorough a definition as I can give because I barely understand it. I've done it. (laughs) A number of people actually took these concepts and made versions of them. Wilhelm Schickard, who was German, figured out a machine that could actually do this by... you would turn dials and it would have the numbers and you would do the additions. About the same time you had the idea of the slide rule and the most famous figure in there was Edmund Gunther who built a sliding single scale logarithmic device who built a sliding scale logarithmic device. William Oughtred in 1630 came up with the circular slide rule, which still to this day is pretty awesome. I have a few of them. <laughs> you could take different ideas and move them around and it wasn't until the 1620s that you saw... it wasn't until the 1640s that you started to see the idea of machines that actually did full calculations that were not requiring the precision of a human. The downside of a slide rule is your vision. You can only get as accurate as you can see the delineation on the actual rule. But Blaise Pascal created several very important mechanical calculators. And these calculators, called Pascalines, started coming up around the 1840s and 50s. This turned out to be amazingly influential. And systems like this were built well into the 1800s. One was by Charles Xavier Thomas de Colmar, about 1820, and it was called the arithmometer. And the arithmometer was super significant in bringing the electronic digital computer to something that could be mass-produced. It could add, subtract, and had a movable carriage that you, so you could multiply and divide. Division was difficult, but you could do multiplication easily. It used a stepped drum concept, which had been invented by Leibniz years before, but we'll mention Leibniz briefly. Leibniz. All of this led to the idea of the mechanical calculator, which exploded in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The reason for this were several devices. One, followed fellow by the name of Hans Eckley, founded a company that released a system called the Millionaire. One story I've heard about the Millionaire was it was sort of named the same way Tombstone was named. Tombstone, of course, famously was the only thing you're going to find out there is your tombstone, and he found a stake in turned it into a major city, which he called Tombstone. Supposedly, the millionaire, as someone said, you'll never make a million dollars selling numbers. And yet he did. (laughs) Nevertheless, it was an important advance on the Thomas Arithmometer. And thousands of them were sold. Many other people founded companies to actually start to sell these. Most importantly, Frieden, Marchant, Monroe. But most importantly to me, Burroughs, founded by William Seward Burroughs, no not the junkie who also could write some really good stories. The Burroughs company would actually go forth and make some of the most important mechanical calculators of the 19th of the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. They would also become very important in cash registers. This would also lead them to entering pretty early on into the electronic realm to the electronic computer and forward. They did some very important work. Calculators are not necessarily computers, particularly mechanical ones are certainly not, not just because they're not electronic, but because they may have some storage, they may, but really they're not storing. They're doing simple processing, absolutely and they have to have an input and an output. But they don't have storage, usually. Once later, things like the HP 35 did have storage capacities, but what passed for storage in a Burroughs or Marchant or Monroe calculator was you would stop, and if you didn't reset, didn't change the numbers. But really that's more memory, but there's not really memory, it's doing it directly. You would press a button and it would advance a wheel, that amount, and then go on and so forth. The key here, though, and very important, is that all of these things are aids to human interactions. At the end of the 19th century, we're seeing a boom in American business, and business around the world as well. It became necessary to mechanize calculation and there's a figure who even earlier was looking at doing that and who sometimes erroneously gets called the father of the computer of course i'm talking about charles babbage charles babbage was what my grandmother would call an honorary cuss he's sometimes called the father of the computer but this isn't true He did have a vision of what a computer could or should be. He started by developing a very complex mechanical calculator called the difference engine. He never actually made one. He made parts of one. But it wasn't until much later that one was actually built, initially by a couple of Swedes, who thought that Babbage had actually made his, so they made theirs, the Scheutz engines. But he abandoned the difference engine, which was designed to calculate navigational tables, in 1833, he developed a design called the Analytical Engine, and the Analytical Engine more or less has the ideas of the modern computer. You could input, in this case via punched cards. You had a thing that he called the store, which is where the information would be held, It had a printer for output, it had a processing section, which is a whole bunch of cams and gears and so forth, which he called the mill, which I think is a better name. We should have gone with mill instead of processor. But it also had a set of ways things would turn in very particular orders that you would kind of look at as microcode or subroutines. These are all really, really cool things, way ahead of their time, except for one minor problem. It never got built. It did get designed, and for the most part, what was there probably would have worked. But there are some problems, and another name that gets brought here, of course, is Ada Lovelace. No, she did not invent software, but it's also not her fault. She probably would have had Babbage actually ever managed to get the analytical engine built, and she'd managed to get her hands on it except the minor issue that one, without an actual device, you can't really determine how it'd be properly used. We knew the theory of it. We didn't know the usage case, and that's really key. Now, a lot of people will say that this is a way to knock Ada Lovelace. No, she was way ahead of the curve. And her description describes something very much like software it is today. I tend to say, I'm not trying to deny Ada Lovelace anything that she deserves. I just wanna put the focus more on the people who actually deserve credits for the mother of software, as it were, who I think is Grace Hopper. Others have other terms, but I'm going, I'm going with that. Babbage's idea didn't really go anywhere, though they've been known the whole time. In fact, there were parts of the analytical engine built that have been on display at the Science Museum in London that were shown in major exhibitions around the... uh, I think mostly in London, honestly. Australia, maybe. But there are no lasting impact except on one dude, Howard Aiken. And in our next episode, when we look at the immediate, prior to electronic computers period, more or less 1925 through about... 1945, the lead-up to World War II, we're going to see that he brought us even closer than Babbage did through his work, and in particular, one device. At the same time, we have this rise of the need by American business for processing and storage and memory. Punch cards were the big one. And most famously, Herman Hollerith was a gentleman who gets the credit for making the modern punch card as we know it for 50, 60, 70 years. The interesting aspect of the punch card was that it allowed information to be stored, counted, and that individual piece of data that a card represent, or several pieces of data, could be moved, resorted, done again. Now, this would be a major impact on computing, of course. And some of the systems that were being used for punch cards actually had elements of computers, things like memory, storage. It was all storage, but how you dealt with the storage. So a device might need to collate. You might need to take two card decks and put them together. You would need to sort them. Well, you have to have a way you sort them in. What are you sorting them by? These are all forms that come close, and sometimes people would connect two up and come up with ways of doing multi-sorts that would actually perform some calculations. But none of them really count, because they're still electric, but they're not really doing representation, except for in the cards themselves. Because the cards were representations of external data. And in a way, they're digital because there's either a hole or there's no hole, but that hole represents something within an analog world and we'll go down a rabbit hole there someday. Calculators, computers, they're related. You could say that without the calculator, the computer wouldn't have happened. And that's certainly true. Many of the important companies that were dealing with calculation would end up becoming computational companies. Burroughs is one, National Cash Register is another. The cash register, another important aspect that often gets overlooked in the history of computing. I think one of the reasons for that is that it's seen as filthy commerce. But they had all of the aspects of mechanical calculators. They, you know, you had to be able to add, subtract. You usually didn't have multiply. And you almost never had divide. But you would more or less do work to tally up. And the mechanical calculator had an added aspect that I think becomes very important. You would input all your information and there'd be an output, usually in the form of little flags type things that would pop up. And it would have the number like 450. So that you and the customer could read it. But here's the aspect that I think is forget that makes it much more analogous to computers as we understand them today than most mechanical calculators is that it had an external control aspect it had to open the drawer here you have something that you are working on that is giving you're you giving it input it is doing the processing, which is very simplistic. It's just rods usually. And the output is out there for you and the thing. And at some point you finish and it controls an internal device to allow an external transaction. This is utterly key to the entire idea of computer's influence on society. Because the cash register, more than anything else, was the first way that people interacted with mechanical calculators on an everyday basis. Because unless you were in banking, some form of bookkeeping, you didn't deal with mechanical calculators. You didn't deal with calculations much, unless you were an architect or something like that. Everyday people didn't But everyday people went and interacted with a cash register. They knew that the values being shown in the output were monetary. And you had to ensure that your processing in the device matched what was being shown because that had a direct influence on you. There's a famous story about abacuses that in China, in particular at the Happy Valley Racetrack, people didn't quite trust that what the abacus, they trusted the abacus, but they didn't trust when they moved to electronic calculators. And the story goes that the abacus slash calculator combo was invented so that they could do the theater of the abacus and then have the have the electron to actually be what they pay out on. It's a theory, I'm not 100% sure it's true, but there's definitely a distrust of the introduction of new technologies. And since you're seeing in a cash register, the numbers come up, you can sort of have an understanding that, oh, the values that are being entered are right, or at least in the right neighborhood, even if you can't keep track directly. On the other side, though, electronic digital computing or electronic computing in general, you can't really see what's going on. You have to place trust in it. And the abacus, the mechanical calculator, and particularly the cash register, give you an example that you can understand and see. Computers require trust, sociologically speaking. That's a difficult aspect and sometimes keeps them from entering into wider use. As the 20s came about in America became more reliant on business practices, we saw the explosion of punch cards and mechanical calculators and other devices that were used with them. If you think of punch cards, for example, you might be a utilities company that needs to keep track of billing, well what are you gonna do? You have to have a punch card for each individual who you're going to be sending a bill to to keep track of their usage. So that means you have to have people to one, collect the information, two, enter the information onto cards, three, run those cards through processing things for sorting and so forth, and four, somewhere to store those cards. This allowed companies like IBM to make massive amounts of money, but it also greatly benefited companies that did things like made cases to carry them, filing cabinets to store them. One thing we will see throughout the history of computing is that every time a new innovation comes in, an entire set of industries arise to make it possible to integrate them into the greater society. A great way to look at it is before the mouse, you didn't need mouse pads. I think that things like that are an interesting little side note and we'll be mentioning those all along the way. By the end of the 1920s, it was clear that research into computation was going to happen fast. We needed to get to a point where we could deal with this large amount of information being collected in traditional, more traditional analog forms needed to be able to dealt with faster at speeds that were not mechanical but electromechanical or even electronic. And in our next episode, we'll be looking at, one, the invention of the vacuum tube, which lots of Bay connections there, two, the early idea of the representation of ones and zeros in relays, three, early electromechanical computers, and four, how we made our way towards World War II, which changed everything in just about every way you could imagine. So I hope you'll stay tuned. I'm Chris Garcia, and this has been Computer History. Thank you for listening.